Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 038, almost there to the magical number 40, which is very close to 50, which is uh, the first major milestone which we're working towards. And so in our last podcast, we talked about book 11 and Patroclus's soft heart and his stopping by Nestor's in order to see whether Machaon, the healer, one of the he healers, alongside his brother Podolarius uh, of the Achaeans and whether he had been injured and whether that was a... And that would be a big deal, and therefore Achilleus indicates that he still cares about the Achaeans by sending Patroclus out to find out about whether this major strategic happening has occurred. The injuring of Machaon, a healer, and the taking of him off the battlefield, leaving one effective healer still out there on the battlefield to help the Achaeans. So they're in a dangerous situation. Uh, Nestor also used this opportunity to um, remind Patroclus of what his duty was here in Troy, that he was to counsel Achilleus because he was older and lesser in rank and not as preeminent in battle. And that, well, if Patroclus were not convincing Achilleus to be preeminent right now, and in fact Achilleus were sitting around in his tent playing his lyre all day and singing songs about heroes of old, well then perhaps the reason the Achaeans are losing right now is because Patroclus is failing to do his job. And so Patroclus' emotions are all astir. But now let's begin book 12, and we'll do this in two parts. Lines 12, 1 to 3, or excuse me, book 12, lines 1 to 32, look to the future. They're a perspective. After the war ends, Poseidon, alongside Apollo, with the help of the rain from Zeus, will, as a trinity, representing one unified will, though three aspects of the divinity, they will destroy the wall of the Achaeans. And, well, why is it that they will do this? Well, first and foremost, recall that Poseidon directly requested this of, <clears throat> of Zeus, and Zeus granted him this request, that after the Achaeans leave, the, the, leave Troy behind, having defeated the Trojans, then Zeus would help uh, Poseidon to destroy the Achaean wall. And why was it that Poseidon wanted the Achaean wall to be destroyed? Well, because the Achaeans did not sacrifice to the gods in creating the wall. And so what does it mean that they did not sacrifice to the gods? Well, it means that it's of shoddy quality. They didn't put enough time or effort into the wall, and so it's not meant to last, and so it won't last. And in fact, the reason that we have this perspective presented at the beginning is that how shoddy the wall is and how quickly it was constructed are immediately going to show. Um, Sarpedon is going to pull a piece of the wall off. Hector is going to smash in one of the gates that's held together by one pin, which means weak. And so that which one does not sacrifice one's effort and time into is a gift that is hateful to the gods, sort of like the gift that Cain offers to the Old Testament god rather than Abel. Uh, the connotation... One of the connotations there being that perhaps Cain's gift was of lesser quality or he put less effort into it than Abel, even if he were, in general, a more gifted individual. And now another important reason that it's Apollo and Poseidon and Zeus that destroyed this wall together is that, well, not it's not only for the reason that Apollo and Poseidon both worked for Laomedon for a year and didn't receive fair payment for that, so they both owe him... Um, they both owe him for that betrayal, one might say. But the other reason is that recall that Apollo is a god on the side of the Trojans, Poseidon is a god on the side of the Achaeans, and Zeus is on neither side, but will 
dispense favor as he wishes or as he has promised in this case, which is to the Trojans through Thetis. So why is it that they all work together here? Well, it, this illustrates a major point that will actually be illustrated again when Apollo almost fights against Poseidon and the Theomachy in book 21. Regardless of which side the gods support in terms of the battle, the Trojan War, they do not put human matters above godly matters, no matter what. And so they can work together in a unified way in order to um, <clears throat> punish the humans for their lack of sacrifice, no matter which side of the battle they found themselves on during the Trojan War, because that which is the business of humans is less important to the gods than that which is the business of God. So even if they find themselves on different sides in the lesser game of a human war, in the larger games of, of how humans appropriately sacrifice to the gods, they find themselves very much on the same team. And so, lines 33 to 36... The battle begins, and Hector fights wildly like a whirlwind, and like a wild boar or lion. And interestingly enough, he's described on line 46 as, and it is his own courage that kills him. A little foreshadowing there that as brave as Hector is, he's an undisciplined fighter. He fights with passion, like a whirlwind, he, uh, with his emotions, um, with wild and crazy strokes, and... Well, it's precisely because he's so brave and courageous and wild that he jumps into situations that he ought not to have jumped into that he unintelligently <clears throat> pursues. And in fact, we'll see that happen directly today. His his top advisor, Pulidamus, who's very much like Nestor to Agamemnon or Antenor to Priam, will give him good advice on two occasions. The first occasion, Hector will follow it wisely and will see success. And the second time, he will not follow it and that will lead to a major failure on his part. And so whenever Hector finds himself uh, divided from his wise counselor, he is divided from wisdom and therefore makes mistakes. And this is something, unfortunately, that Hector does. So success breeds its own problems. Hector and the Trojans run into the wall and the spikes. <clears throat> And they're all on horses and in chariots. And so the question becomes, well, <clears throat> do we get past the spikes on our horses and chariots and risk getting trapped between the Achaeans and the spikes? Or do we dismount from our chariots and leave our horses and our chariots and engage with the Achaeans hand-to-hand, um, -hand on foot-to-foot, uh, -foot on foot together in an infantry-style uh, melee battle, um, which is more equal ground, but will provide us with opportunity to retreat when appropriate. Well, Pulidamus is the one who suggests these options, not Hector, and he suggests, as the wise counselor to Hector, the horses be left on the outside of the ditch in case the Achaeans mount a defense, a defense which presses the Trojans back into the ditch. Uh, that would be a major, um, that would be major success becoming major failure for absolutely no reason, for an unconsidered reason. So this pleases Hector, and he springs down, and then the Trojans mount five be battalions behind him, and so. Well, what does it mean that five battalions then mount behind uh, Hector? Well, they'll be led by the best men of the Lycaeans, the Dardanians, and the Trojans, <clears throat> including P Paris, 
But what it means is that the men are forming up and they're following Hector's orders better. They're forming up behind him and organizing their actions better. Well, because they're organizing better, what does that mean? That means that Zeus will favor them and that they will be doing well insofar as they do this. And in fact, we get the leaders of each uh, <clears throat> of the five uh, read out here. So Hector is with Pulidamas and Cabrianes. Remember that Cabrianes is his current um, charioteer and Pulidamas is his wise counselor. And so both of these are individuals who lead him in some way. Uh, Paris is the head of the next um, contingent with Agenor, son of Antenor, and Alcathoos. Uh, the third contingent is interesting because it has Helenos, Deiphobos, and Asius. Well, the thing about Helenos and Deiphobos is they're both sons of Priam. They're both brothers to both Paris and Hector, and they're certainly brothers to Paris, and that they're both potentially traitors. Helenus will later be caught by the Achaeans and will give them necessary information about prophecies which will enable them to win the Trojan War and defeat the Trojans, and it probably would have been better had he died. And in fact, he'll be husband to the pale shadow of Andromache, Hector's wife, and a dried up and faded version of Troy called Buthrotum in the Aeneid, which will have a dried up Xanthos, indicating the dried up spring of life, which no longer flows within these people because they live in the past, not in the present. <clears throat> and Deiphobos will be called upon to fight next to Hector against Achilleus, and when the moment comes to fight, Deiphobos will be nowhere to be found. And it's suggested that that's because Athena made uh, embodied him and then disappeared. And perhaps that's true, but perhaps a more symbolic interpretation would be that um, wisdom leaves Hector behind when he chooses to fight against Achilleus. He may be brave, and though that'll be put into question when he runs about Troy three times, as if he's being chased by a nightmare, which he is. <clears throat> but whether he's acting wisely when he fights against Achilleus as well, that's certainly not the case. And in fact, his mother and his father yelling down from the walls will in indicate the same to him. So, in the fourth contingent, Aeneas, head of the Lycaeans, son to Aphrodite, though he's called son of Anchises here, which is interesting, who will be <clears throat> somebody we will meet in book six of the Aeneid in the underworld and before. Also, Archilochus and Achamus are with Aeneas. Sarpedon, then, is the head of the fifth contingent with Glaucus and Asteropios. And something interesting about Asteropios is that he's ambidextrous, and he is the single man in the entire Iliad to injure Achilles. And we'll see that much, much later on. And uh, one interesting thing about Sarpedon is on line 104, he's called preeminent. It's unclear to me exactly whether he's called preeminent amongst his companions or of all the Trojans, but that's something for us to keep in mind. So all five contingents follow the order of Pulidamas through the order of Hector. Trojans now are ordering better, and so Zeus favors them. Only Asius disobeys. He's called a fool twice by Homer in the same passage. And in fact, he's rebuffed by the Lapithi, which perhaps are the same people as the Lapiths who have to rebuff the centaurs from the most famous uh, wedding, one of the most famous weddings of the ancient Greek world. In fact, there are three that immediately come to mind, Peleus and Thetis, in which case the Apple of Eris featured prominently, um, the Lapiths and the centaurs, <clears throat> in which case the centaurs attempt to abscond with the women of the Lapiths in typical fashion. And then, of course, Orpheus and Eurydice, Eurydice where uh, all the gods and goddesses were present and 
Yordice is bitten by a poisonous snake while at the bridal party or at the the party after the wedding, the reception, as it were, and then she dies. And so weddings are times of major conflict in Greek society and mythology. And so these two Lapithi, there's this one Polypoites, who's the son of Parathos, and Parathos was a companion of Theseus and also son to Zeus. And in fact, he and Theseus at once went down to the underworld um, in order to abscond with Persephone, the wife to Hades, the queen of the damned and the underworld. And well, unfortunately, Parathos ate from the food of the underworld and became stuck there for all eternity. And so his son, Polypoites, is also a very gifted individual, as Parathos was as while he was alive, and he fights alongside a lion-like man named Leontius. And they're described as two oak trees, and the oak tree is the tree of Zeus, and Zeus is the god of order, and therefore the oak tree represents the stability of order, which is maintained by Leontius and, per and the son of Parathos, Polypoites, here. And so Asios attempts to go um, these men are defending the gate, one of the gates of the wall of the Achaeans, which is not yet closed. And so Asios attempts to fight against them, but he, he can't get through. And he's so annoyed because it seems like it should be an easy, uh, access should be easy for him. And yet he describes the Achaeans as fighting like wasps or like bees. And so they're annoying, but they're harmful too. And they're threatening and they're frustrating above all else. And so Homer then uh, commits an act of apostrophe in uh, uh, lines 175 to 180. And now at the various gates, various men fought each other. It were too much toil for me, as if I were a god to tell all this. For all about the stone wall, the inhuman strength of the fire was rising, and the Argives fought unhappily, yet they must fight on to defend their ships. And all the gods who were helpers of the Danaeans in the fight were dejected in spirit. And so the Achaeans are fighting hard for their ships, and a line mentioned earlier, but, or excuse me, mentioned earlier by Homer, but not read there, is that they, um, Asios says that they fight as if they're fighting for their children. They fight so hard. They've been able to abstract the notion of that which is most precious to them um, out from their, children's and their children and families, and they have applied it to this situation in which that which gets them home to their, children's and their children and families, the, the, the ships, um, well, it is as if the Achaeans are now fighting for their home and families because if they do not win or prevail against the Trojans, the Trojans will come into their camp, burn their ships, and then kill them, and they never will see their children and family. And then Zeus knows, only Zeus knows, what may happen to them in the future. Um, not simply from the Trojans, but from anybody else. And so Parathos, or excuse me, not Parathos, but Polypoetes and Leontius each kill their man. Pulidamus then sees a bird sign as the most numerous, bravest, and most furious to smash the wall of the Trojans follow him and Hector. And so the sign is very interesting. An eagle flies above the battlefield, carrying a blood-red viper in its talons by the chest and the middle. But the blood-red viper is described as not having yet lost its fighting spirit. And so it fights back against the eagle and of course recall the Mexican flag with this and understand that 
often the eagle is used as a symbol of either the divine or the divine king or divine right or or as a higher perspective capable of drawing a limited territory and enforcing justice on that through possible predation and that snake and that it is also a symbol of the spirit because it can fly often enough and that the snake is a symbol of matter because it comes out from the ground and slithers across the ground and is of course um hateful to woman in in Genesis because nature can be hateful to woman through the fact that she bears children and uh, children can kill women. In fact, um, d uh, mortality rates in developing countries can be as much as 50%, and which is just incredibly high, tremendous. And also the snake is that thing which can, in the evolutionary past, according to Lynn Isabel and Jordan B. Peterson, at least 60 million years ago, used to consume us. And it's actually true of also the eagle. And so both the spirit and matter um, can offer their dangers to humans. And so it's interesting to consider that there is a battle between eagle and and serpent here. But also it's an is it's an interesting matter of perspective because Puladamas here sees the eagle as the creature of right and the snake is that which is uh, embodying the invader, that which comes in to steal the eggs of the, the bird, that which seeks to kill the young of a settled people, that the army which intends to tear down the walls of the Trojans and to sack their city, take their women and kill their children. That is what that is what Puladama sees. And so he sees the Trojans as the side of right, the eagle, whereas the insipid snake is, of course, the Achaeans. And well, the snake gets away from the Trojans. And so how does how does Puladamas understand this? And if you wish to understand, if you if you're wondering what what exactly Huh? He sees an eagle with a snake? Well, it's possible that he sees a physical eagle with a snake, but more likely that he sees this in his imagination, that it's right hemispheric projection into his mind, and so that he perceives the situation in an imaginative way and then has the cognitive capacity to correctly interpret it. And so he, he says, if the snakes are the Achaeans and we're the Trojans, and what, then what that means is that if we break down the Achaean wall, we'll do great damage to them, like the eagle clearly did to the snake, but the snake will get away and will be even angrier. And in fact, we will suffer heavy losses and casualties just to have done something violent and mean to the Achaeans, which will stir them up, but not bring them uh, any closer to losing. Uh, it will be a violent attempt that will to destroy the Achaeans, which will end up being ineffectual. It will fail. And well, supporting the idea that Hector neither physically sees what, um, what Puladamas is talking about, nor intellectually, he says, what? He, he, he foolishly refuses. He says, then if in all seriousness, this is your true argument, then it is the very gods that have ruined the brain in you. 234 to 235. It's caustic, his tone that he takes towards Puladamas. And recall that Puladamas is the one intelligent enough to see the situation correctly for what it is, and he's certainly right. 
that though the Trojans will collapse the Achaean Wall in a spot, they will fail to make any significant progress within the camp and uh, through their mission to burn the Achaean ships, and the Achaeans will rally. And so Pulidamus is right, and so Hector's criticism of him is completely unjustified, and here it is. You who are telling me to forget the counsels of thunderous Zeus, which he himself nodded his head to me and assented, but you, you tell me to put my trust in birds who spread wide their wings? And just to pause for a second here, is it is it actually trust in birds or in the thought of his wise counselor who sees the situation in a broader and more articulated way than he does? Is the bird, for example, a sign from the imagination interpreted by an intelligent individual? Clearly so. And so Hector continues, I care nothing for these, you might say. Those are thoughts. I think nothing of them nor whether they go by on our right against the dawn and sunrise or go by to the left against the glooming mist and the darkness. Uh, fantasies, one might say. No, let us put our trust in the council of great Zeus. And what is the council of great Zeus but following the images from one's own mind? He who is lord over all mortal men and all immortals. One bird sign is best to fight in defense of our country. Why are you so afraid of war and hostility? And in fact, the note I wrote in my book is actually nonsense. Hector goes completely ad hominem in his arguments here against the man. It's a logical fallacy, but it's not simply a logical fallacy. He simply fails to address the point of Pulidamus. Pulidamus says something completely correct, that perhaps though this would be a brutal and painful maneuver to enact against the Achaeans, and uh, perhaps the Trojans want to commit this maneuver because they feel a desire for revenge against the Achaeans. Um, but can they put away their desire for vengeance in order to do what is more strategically sound? And in fact, that is, an, that is a question that's sort of posed by Dante in the sphere of Mercury in his Paradiso. And he suggests that that is precisely the reason that Jesus did not punish um, the humans for killing him because that enabled him to have a moral high ground which created the ideal of keeping the moral high ground rather than indulging in infinite and endless conflicts. And so Hector, he decides to interpret the situation not in an adaptive and current way, taking uh, into consideration the current situation as it is and how uh, the battle ebbs and flows in the moment. But he says, one bird sign is best, to fight in defense of the, com the country. He, he espouses a principle, but how that, a principle, how that principle applies to the situation is precisely the question. One simply can't say, to love one's country is best in response to, what do we do in this current situation in which we're in a battle in which we have two options ahead of us? That's not one of the options. The second uh, response is, he says, why are you so afraid of war and hostility, hostility as if Pulidamus is not suggesting a wise course of action, as if Pulidamus is speaking out of cowardice rather than uh, courageously speaking against his leader's wishes in order to save the most Trojans or to maximize their uh, chance of success. Hector is arguing against wisdom here, and so he fails to understand the larger picture. He attacks the count the character of his counselor, and therefore he really attacks his own character. And so we see him make another major mistake, just like when he chose Dolon to go out uh, on the Trojan spy mission. 
And so the Achaeans, they continue to do what they do. They're maintaining defense now, lines 260 to 265. And well, there's a, there is an heroic effort of the Iontes helping out. And recall, the Iontes are the two Iases, Ias the Greater and Ias the Lesser. And they're using kind words where necessary in order to encourage, but also harsh words where necessary, understanding that there are people who are disagreeable and people who are agreeable, and that we must individualize our expression to the individuals with whom we're speaking and not judge others simply by uh, group based measures. And so the Ayante showed that that is actually the aspect of a good leader to be able to individualize one's manner of communication to the, to the individual with whom one is speaking. And well, that, that surely is true because that is an ordering sort of speech and recognizing the individual value of the person in front of you. And so there are so many stones thrown between the armies uh, that it's like a snowstorm sent by Zeus. And you might say they're not only stones being thrown, but projections as well, because these men essentially on both sides are very similar. However, what are they projecting onto each other? Well, the images of devils and demons and evil creatures that they must kill, uh, the images of utter darkness. And so, enter Sarpedon and the Lycans. Drum roll, boom, hit the base. Lines 290 to 305. They attack like a lion long without meat, so they are hungry for battle. And in fact, line 292, Zeus drives on Sarpedon. In line 307, it's his own spirit that does. And well, one wonders, are... Are the will of Zeus and the will of his own son, the will of man and the will of God, one and the same insofar as one is fighting for order and justice? And so if a man fights for order and justice, does he therefore embody the will of Zeus, the absolute will, as Dante will later call it? Well, that's an interesting question. In fact, uh, is that what the humans do in the Iliad? Do they manifest the will of the gods in better and worse ways? And do the humans therefore exist to make manifest the will of the gods. And well, you might well say that what would be the necessity of having humans and their mortality within the world of the Iliad if there were not something that the humans could do that the gods could not. And perhaps, perhaps it is the humans who can adapt the divine principles of the gods to anomalous and new situations um, and therefore, humans are the current manifestation of that which is eternally divine, and that perhaps that is just as true in the Iliad as it is in the world. And so, I often tell the students, lines 310 to 328 in Book 12 are among my favorite lines in the Iliad. Um, and they, they set, I would say, my true love of Sarpedon's character. And so... Please listen very much, very closely to these lines because I, I find them to be amongst the noblest lines that I've, I've found in all, all of literature. And now he spoke and addressed to Glaucus, son of Hippolochus. Glaucus, why is it you and I are honored before others with pride of place, the choice meats and the filled wine cups in Lycia? And all men look on us as if we were immortals. And we are appointed a great piece of land by the banks of Xanthos. Good land, orchard, and vineyard, and plowland for the planting of wheat. Therefore, it is our duty 
in the forefront of the Lycaeans to take our stand and to bear our part of the blazing of battle, so that a man of the close-armed Lycaeans may say of us, Indeed, these are no ignoble men who are lords of Lycaea, these kings of ours who feed upon the fat sheep appointed and drink the exquisite sweet wine, since indeed there is strength of valor in them, since they fight in the forefront of the Lycaeans. Man, supposing you and I escaping this battle would be able to live on forever, ageless, immortal, so neither would I myself go on fighting in the foremost, nor would I urge you into the fighting where men win glory. But now, seeing that the spirits of death stand close about us, in their thousands, no man can turn aside nor escape them. Let us go on and win glory for ourselves, or yield it to others. He spoke and nor did Glaucus disobey him. And so what did Sarpedon just say to his henchman Glaucus? He said to him, well, Glaucus, my friend, don't we receive the best parts of the meat and sit at the finest places at the dinner table and receive the sweetest of wine? Don't we receive the best things? And well, if the answer is yes, and it is, and why is it that we receive the best things? Well, it's because we offer the most to our society. We, we are the most valiant. We fight the hardest. We are the most dominant and competitive and successful in the way that Lycaeans can be successful. And like Trojans and Achaeans, it's through their prowess on the battlefield. And so Sarpedon says, and you know what, my friend? So we should justify the Lycaean opinion that we are the greatest and that I am king because I am the strongest and the most helpful and the most gracious, therefore. And it is for the Lycaeans to say of their kings that they are no mean men because they are judged by their kings because their kings are their greatest men and therefore the ones most subject to judgment. But so, one, one other thing is that if I could assure you that you would never die, you could be ageless, immortal, forever, if you didn't fight, well then, I wouldn't fight either. And I wouldn't recommend that you do it. But the fact is we will die. And there are thousands right near us dying. Who are we not to as our fellow man does this? And so ought we not go out and win glory for ourselves and for our people? Or to at least give glory to another? And so Sarpedon just frames the situation perfectly well. No matter whether we die, no matter whether we live or die, we will have done exactly what our duty was, and therefore our story will be correct and properly ordered, and we will serve as emblems to those who come in the future. And that's certainly true insofar as this podcast is being created and these courses are being taught and these books are being read continually. And so... Sarpedon perfectly recognizes his situation, and something to understand is that he offers himself as a foil and therefore contrast to Achilleus, because Sarpedon is himself a son of Zeus, a half-immortal, and one might imagine, especially with Zeus loving him as he does, that Sarpedon would have difficulty recognizing the fact of his mortality and be resentful of the fact that he 
unlike the other sons of Zeus like, say, Apollo and Ares and Dionysus, is not immortal. Well, unlike Achilleus, who resents this fact, Sarpedon is perfectly at one with the fact that he will die, and that enables him to embrace his role in life with perfect 100% accuracy. And so what, what is the effect of his words and his character? Well, he, he impresses nobility upon the soul of his listeners because his rank and his value coincide perfectly as number one in this king, and he is precisely the man that those around him would wish him to be. And so, with that, we conclude the first part of our two-part um, series on Book 12 of Homer's Iliad, and I hope you have a wonderful day.